Oh, yeah, well, you don't need perfect credit, uh-huh. Even with credit scores in the 500s, it only takes a cup of coffee to get started. Dig it? Oh, yeah, snap into it. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer, the hardcore legend himself. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Conrad. Doing great. I'm sorry, I was 17 minutes late to be here. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, it got lost wait. even with the GPS telling me where to go. Just, My goodness. But I'm here, I'm safe, and I'm ready for a great show. It is going to be a great show. We're going to be talking about you breaking into the business. I can't believe this is real, Mick, but today is our one-year anniversary. Nice. How about that? One year of Foley's Pod. And in they the said it wouldn't last. And they said. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what is lasting. The incredible series that you're working on, you can watch each and every Sunday night on A&E. Man, this Most Wanted Treasure show, I loved it. I loved the Brett episode. We yeah. just got to see Goldberg. I think coming up this weekend, you were saying is Piper? Piper, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a fun one because I get to uh, go to Orlando and visit with uh, Teal Piper, Roddy's daughter, and you can see how much these things mean to her. Uh, saw your buddy in Vermont. Yep. Uh, and one of the really trying things about this is the travel was just crazy. Yes. So like with the Goldberg uh, episode, we, as you know, Alita and I have to be available when the talent's available. So it doesn't matter that it doesn't make any rhyme or reason. So I went in a three or four day span, I went from New York where I was visiting my mom to uh, California, Modesto, California. Then I went from California to Boston to interview the, to uh, try to find Goldberg's boots. And then from Boston to Hutchinson, Kansas, which is not a nonstop from Boston to Topeka. No, it is not. And then home. And this is when I was going through some lower back issues, some of those little nerve issues I've talked about in the past. I remember specifically going from Modesto to Boston where even I, you know, I had a first-class seat. Technically, it should have been comfortable. I must have wriggled a thousand times. It was one of the least comfortable trips I'd ever had just because of you know, the stuff I did and then the extra weight that I picked up. But it was miserable, especially because in the back of my head, I kept thinking of Felita saying to me, but Mick, I only live 10 minutes from Modesto. Why oh, don't I do that one? I call up, hey, Lita only lives 10 minutes from Modesto. And I said, Mick, we, we really need you for this one because we were trying to find Kurt's milk truck. Oh, okay. And I guess that, now that you look at it, especially because I don't want to tip my hat to what happens, but... Kurt having trouble with trying to actually drive the milk truck and my look of just utter disappointment at the gold medalist. I love it. Was uh, one of my favorite moments of the show, but I'm really having fun. The gold, I don't, we started to talk about Goldberg and I yeah. said, hold on, let's, let's leave it for the show. Because um, one thing I was told when I went to Tim Jamison's house for season one, uh, AJ Francis told me the negotiations are legit. You know, that you, we may not get it. We don't know what it's going to go for. So when he made a, an offer of 5K for one of the original Mankind shirts, and I'm pretty sure I let go for $700 oh, at wow. some point. And Tim didn't even blink. No, no, and he went up to 6K. And then I said to, to AJ, like, what's our max? 
And we, even when we got to the max, which was seven, seven and a half thousand dollars, he he wouldn't give. And yeah. I and I know that's not good TV, right? Right. That's where I had to sweeten the pot with the pizza deal. Yep. Now here's a little behind the scenes thing, and I don't know why they did it this way. I can only speculate. I did give Tim another viewing party. This is in addition to the two that he's gotten for uh, good charitable causes, right? Uh, there have been two times that Tim was uh, the winner and I went over to his house to have a pizza party. So after it was over and I was thinking, why didn't they include the pizza party? I thought, from a storytelling point of view, it's so much more powerful for Tim to learn that it's Brett's jacket yes. and it's going back to Brett than having a pizza party as an incentive. Yes. So it makes it, a t you know, is it the whole truth? Maybe that, you know, the pizza party is a little bit of the truth. But I think, you know, we are storytellers. Yes. We're not doing something that's not true. It just, the addition, I think, would have weakened the story, which was Tim loves this stuff. And the truth is, like, he didn't, uh, you know, like, he was torn, especially sure. when he found out it had been stolen. You could see him torn. And, uh, you know, he did the right thing. And when I went back over to do the pizza party, he had that uh, illustration from Brett. Wow. So Brett didn't give him an old one. Brett made him a new one just for him. So uh, all's cool, well man. that ends well. And, uh, man, I'm, uh, I think I'm going to do some type of, uh, I don't want to say 100% charity, but maybe like a 50% charity thing where I get rid of my entire wardrobe from Legends. Oh, like, wow. Like six different items of clothing. So... It's like, I love that. It's so like much. three flannels. Yeah, twelve episodes, <laughs> six pieces of clothing. That checks out. That's the Foley way. Yeah. Well, check it out every Sunday night on A and E, uh, and we should also give a little plug to something. I think you recently sat down and watched. Did you just sit down and watch a documentary recently? I did. I did. I was trying to watch um, Chris and Tammy on uh, Vice, mm -hmm. and uh, I, we were unable to get it. I did not know we did not have Vice on our TV. Oh, I see. And so I was trying to pay for it. Whatever I was doing wasn't working. And then there was a suggested uh, movie. That's you know the way these things work these days. And I was like, I can't believe I haven't seen this, especially because I was you know around during the filming. I actually have a little cameo in, yeah. in as as does Frank the Clown. So the extended Foley family is well represented. So I watched it. Have you seen it? I have. I loved it. I loved it too. I loved it. Like my uh, my youngest son came over. He goes, "Is this like a comedy? Is this real?" And I go, "It's definitely real. If anything, it's kind of sad right now." They set out, you know, and I was at the Legend Show, uh, the the original one where where David was kicked out. Mm -hmm. I remember coming and and coming to the event and being told, "Yeah, we had an incident with David Arquette," and unless this was some extreme long term planning by Knobs and Arquette. This appeared to be 100% legit. At least Steamboat felt it was 100% legit when he got kicked out. And then I heard, yeah, we told him if he wanted to come to the show, he had to buy a ticket, wow. which he did. So from a story arc perspective, it was a really beautifully told story. Yes. And uh, it was like a good match in the sense that, you know, he's down. There's some heat on him. He's making that comeback. He's learning to work. He goes down to Tijuana. He does the street wrestling. Lucha in the street. And Lucha in the street. And, I, you know, it's a genuine feel-good movie. And yes. then comes the Nick Gage part. Yes. You talk about cutting off a comeback yes. with a screeching halt. I had seen the clips on Nick Gage's uh, 
Social? A dark side of the ring. Oh, okay. I didn't see it on social. What I did not realize, and this is a testament to Marquette, okay? I finished the cell match after coming back from being unconscious. Right. Undertaker finished that match with a broken foot. Arquette actually rolled back into the ring to do the finish even after he realized he conceivably could be bleeding to death. He had a hole in his neck. He had a hole in his neck that was just spurting blood. First thing, he, he grabs it like this, so he knows he's hurt. Yes. He looks like he's in shock, but there's that part of him. So for anyone who doubts his love for the business. That tells the whole story. This is an incredible moment to me. I don't advocate it. I, I don't like the light tubes. I just, I just yeah. think that on the Foley risk-reward ratio analysis, too much a risk for too little reward. There's other things you can do that get an equal reaction or almost as good without posing nearly a danger to you, your opponent, and the fans. Yes. That's an important one, you know? I mean, I, that's an important one. You do not want to hurt the fans. You don't right. want to be in a, first of all, you don't want to do it because fans shouldn't get injured when they're at the matches. Right. Uh, now, granted, I did do some dives into the audience, you know, in Japan, but they, they like that. There's and, more control there. Yeah, it's not a litigious society, at least it wasn't when I was there. But this, uh, man, it was really, I was really touched by it. I, I, you know, I was, I loved seeing the, the warm relationship, even though Courtney Cox and David are not on the screen at the same time, their daughter Coco, right. it, you know, is child with him and Courtney, taught, obviously loves her dad and is just a great big sister and is on the Foley Santa, you know, okay. Santa letter thing. So the Arquettes received a visit this year from Santa on Christmas Eve as well. Um, I'm surprised, knowing your relationship, that you hadn't seen it. I'm glad you got to see it. I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. Highly recommended. Can I recommend something else? Please this do. Is, they're not a sponsor. This is more of a public service. Right. And people are going to think I'm kidding, but I'm not. And if you're a fellow big guy out there listening and you're having some sensory issues with your nether regions. Okay. Which I was developing. When I put on all that weight, you know, you get in there and there's no air in there to relieve your guys. Okay. So the answer, Lumi. Okay. That's the stuff where that really t tough looking, but you know, attractive woman comes on, I guess who developed it. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about her under boobs and her pits and her butt crack and all that. And I was like, it wouldn't hurt. And I have to tell you, I don't know what kind of, uh, what it is that prevents that guy smell. You know, you don't want your boys thinking, right? right. Like, uh, so imagine, if you will, that you are uh, a listener and you're getting the blue chew and there's nothing discreet about your package. But if your boys are smelling, mm. that's not a good, that's not good for anyone involved. And I'm just saying not so much the guys for me, but that area there, the triangle area where the, uh, the, uh, the, gimmicks, uh, get yeah, the yeah, gimmicks get together. That was my area. And I gotta be honest, there would be times where I was like, I knew I just showered earlier that day. And then you're like, and then you realize it's you, that's a depressing thought. Enough to send me out to the refrigerator at 3 a.m. for some consolation with some high carburate, high grade foods. I just, I'm, if people think this is a joke, it's not. I'm just saying, I know they're not a sponsor and I know we already talked about women's clothing and now I'm talking about women's beauty products, but this is, can you, can we like just, cause I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably listening to this. Yeah. And they're thinking, man, I don't, I don't really follow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna direct you to our YouTube channel. We'll actually throw a link in the description here, okay. so you can go just right to our YouTube. 
do you just want to just drop trail and give us a demonstration of how to apply it? Like, just like a liberal coding, show us what we're Absolutely not. That's the last thing. <laughs> what if I had Grillo come over? You could apply I it could to apply him. it to Grillo. <laughs> 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 just get right in there where the flesh meets the inner thigh. Where the gimmicks get together. Uh, you scoop it in there. But I have to tell you, this is important. It's 72 hours. I haven't, I did just last night push the 72 hour limit, and I was okay. A marked change. I'm just telling you, it's not a miracle. Darn near close to it, though, for the big guys with the. Uh, Where was the this issue. shit when Vader was around? <laughs> <laughs> Could have been a game changer for my man. Hey, listen, if you haven't already, go check it out. We love the movie. It came out three years ago, I guess. It's uh, You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Uh, if you're a wrestling fan, I think you'll dig it. And of course, you're a wrestling fan because you're listening here to Foley's Pod. And since it is our one year anniversary, I thought we would get back and. Talk about your very first year in wrestling. Would love to do it, but may I just bring up one other Please thing do. first? Uh, as you know, you and I were looking for something to do, something fun to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the cell. Oh, yeah. And the issue we had was that, you know, I'm going to be starting a, a vacation up in the mountains with my kids. And so Boston seemed like, in the uh, White Mountains of New Hampshire, Boston seemed like the right place to do it. Yes. The issue is I've got a couple signings within that three-month window, actually Absolutely. within a one-month window, that are within the 100-mile radius. And, you, you know, it's not good form to do that to yes. somebody who's paying you. So I went the other direction. I went west. Burlington, Vermont seems like a strange place to celebrate uh, the Sal. I did try to do an event on uh, that night in Pittsburgh, but the two locations where I've done my one-man show were not available. I wrote to one place in Pittsburgh, um, sent them an email, uh, a, a good comic book store, and they wrote back and said, I have trouble believing that Mick Foley actually reaches out to stores to do his own signing. So I sent back a photo of me going, hey, we can't remember the name of the comic book shop. It's me, Mick Foley. And then he didn't get back to me. So I was able to reach out to a different store, and they said, we'd love to do it, but actually, is there a chance you could do it on Sunday, the 25th? So for Pittsburgh fans, I don't know the exact, uh, New Dimension Comics, I think, is the name of the store. You can go to, uh, oh, I, I don't know if it's up on We'll Real, get it in the description. Yeah, realmickfoley.com. But I did land that st that uh, show, very small venue, 130-seater, and we've got only 12 tickets left. Oh, wow. So if someone wants to be part of that show where we relive uh, the 20, 25th, we li relive that moment from 25 years ago, uh, that's the show. I can't tell you how close it will resemble 20 years of L. I'm sure it won't be a complete departure because that was a really good show. Yeah, it was. And I think you can dust off a classic every five years, uh, take it out of mothballs. But I have a new perspective on it. You know, I feel really great about that match, and I know we're going to be doing a special oh, show absolutely. here to commemorate it as well. But if you are in within a few hours of Burlington, Vermont, and you want to be there that night to commemorate it, Better act quick because there's only 12 tickets left. It's going to be super cool. Check it out right now, realmickfoley.com. so you can catch Mick on the road coming to an area near you. But let's talk about when it all started, man. You know, when did you first, like, realize I want to be a professional wrestler? Like, do you remember how old you were when you decided this is what I'm going to do? Now, my brother and I were probably 11, 12 when we first started watching it together. Uh, so I wasn't in there from birth like some fans. 
and we loved it. And there was a story I told in uh, JR's uh, interview with JR where I did kind of a pseudo backdrop. You know, on a bit, my brother came at my, my brother was actually a pretty good amateur wrestler. Um, and I kind of pseudo backdropped my brother and I thought he was just selling. He was like, ah, oh, oh, and then I was oh, coming in with the oblique chops or whatever I was doing. And he goes, I broke my nose. <laughs> so I guess he hit his face against the wall. And that's where my mom came in and said, no more wrestling. Yeah. And as I said to that interview with JR, she didn't say no more dreaming. So it was probably a couple more, a few more years when I was 16 or so, when I really started getting into it. Uh, right after, like, uh, it was after the leap, Snooker's leap on Backland. Right. Where Backland rolled out of the way. But when I tuned in, Snooker immediately became my guy to the point where I was spending a lot of my senior year in high school at home on Saturday nights. Because when I grew up, you had two hours of WWF wrestling. You had it at, I think, 11 a.m., and then you had it on um, either before or after horse racing from Yonkers at midnight. And I was so enamored. You know, if, there was only like a 50% chance that Snooker was going to be on. Right. And out of that, there was probably about a 50% chance you were going to see the splash. Right. Sometimes you just got the headbutt from the second rope, which wasn't quite the same thing. But that was enough to keep me home because I did not want to miss out. This is maybe there was really rudimentary VCRs at that time, yeah. but if there were, they were really rudimentary and we did not have one yet. So the only way to watch this in like 82 was to uh, was to stay home. What what was it about Snuka that attracted you to him? Like what stood I think it was that wildness in the eyes, the sense that especially when he did uh, the angle with uh, Morocco and this was, to this day, I haven't seen this done. Maybe it has been done. I haven't, can't recall it's been done. It was like, we didn't hear what Morocco said. But he said something that sent Snuka over the top rope with a top, oh, flying body press. Right. Which at that time was rarely, I think Tiger Mask had done it against Dynamite at the Garden in 1980. But you never saw someone coming over the top rope like that. Yeah. And when he did it, it was just this... Uh, a suspension of disbelief, this could this be real moment. And even in his later years, not the very later years, but even during Snooka's second run where he, uh, uh, you know, he did the honors for Undertaker yes. and the, the first, uh, what would become the streak, he, there was still that wildness in his eyes, that still what if factor. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, and this is where I realized I can't look like this guy. I can try to grow my hair like that guy. I wanted the long hair, which is absolutely when my uh, quest to be part of the United States military ended. I was like, can I serve with long hair? No, I can't. I guess I'm not going to serve. But I did get my application to West Point and Annapolis rejected, so I did try. Um, but there was just something about Snooka, and I realized, all right, I can't jump high, but I can jump from high places. And thus began, uh, you know, really a quest to jump off just about every place I could imagine with the caveat that there'd be something there to break my fall. Right. So if I was jumping off a sand dune, it had to be when, or not necessarily sand dune, but uh, sand at the beach, it had to be when the water was coming in. So even if there's only three inches of water, I would come down, can I break my fall? And there was this one moment, a defining moment in college I think I was a sophomore, I think it's October of uh, 
October of 83, October of 83, possibly October of 84, probably October 84. And there's a, a party going on and I'm like looking seemingly off into space. And a friend and I, mine named Bob Spaeth, who was a couple of years older than us, tough guy. We all looked up to him, good guy. He goes, hey, what are you doing, Mickey? I said, I was just wondering, if I were to jump off this roof, do you think that garbage can could break my fall? And he looks at me and goes, I think you need another drink. And I said, oh, I'm not drinking. So <laughs> it was just a matter of always being enamored with trying to jump off stuff. But there had to be a way to break my fall. And you think that came from snooker? 100% from snooker. And, and your animal print boots, was that also a nod? No, no, the animal print boots uh, came about strictly because Ted Petty, who was the cheetah kid at the, oh, look at that, oh, glorious. Jimmy John's just arrived. Oh my goodness. Uh, Ted Petty, who was a heck of a, a wrestler as a cheetah kid before he became Rocco Rock, came back from Mexico with a pair of cheetah print boots. No, you know, it's a faux cheetah. No cheetahs were killed and they're making these boots, and they didn't fit him. So he asked, said for $100, he goes, I got a pair of boots, and they fit me, 100 bucks. And so therefore, the cheetah print came into the Cactus Jack fold. Uh, originally, they were only about mid-calf, uh, and then when I had a chance, after those were stolen, out of my car, or out of the car that was driving me around in uh, New Orleans, just came back to the car, and boom, my whole bag was gone. And I started going with the higher ones, but the original ones were, uh, Ted Petty's uh, boots that did not fit him from Mexico. So I thought maybe we were on to something with the animal print. Ted Petty fills in the gaps there. The long hair, the diving off stuff, even the dirty eyes, that's all. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. A little bit of that was snooker. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the eyes, the wide open eyes, you know. It was just the idea that you could get away in storytelling. There were, you could kind of bridge gaps just by saying that Pat Patterson, why isn't he going for the pin in this cage match with uh, with the Morocco? And Pat Patterson, I tell you, Vince, or I tell you, Gorilla, what he thinks and what we think are different. And that made complete sense to me. Yes. So again, uh, as I got into wrestling, and I, when I, don't, I think we have to really be careful here that we don't have a six hour episode. Right. Because there's a lot to unpack here. Sure. So much, so many great memories, so many great learning experiences from the first, I guess, year and a half that I was there, even two years that I was traveling back and forth to Danucci School. But when I did get involved, and Brian Hildebrandt showed me, um, he came in, I was having trouble with my punches. Okay. And this is a story I was telling some of the time on the Nice Day Tour. The tour, one of the nice things about doing the stage show is it kind of evolves as it goes. Right. So I think I started out with the Danucci stories and then I gravitated away from it. But one of the nice things is if you want to make the show different, one night you talk about breaking in, the next night you don't. So you don't feel like you're just going through, um, you know, memorizing yes. stories. Even though memorizing stories are a really important part of doing a, a good show. You want to perfect the stories yes. as opposed to a promo, which is usually at its best, at its most raw. Um, so Brian uh, Hildebrandt later became Mark Curtis and was uh, Jimmy Cornette's right-hand man in uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, was a great referee for WCW, one of the dearest friends I ever had. And we lost him way too soon to uh, cancer. He says, uh, Cactus, he goes, 
watch, I'm having trouble with my punches. And if you are a brawling wrestler who can't throw a punch, I would say that's, that's an issue, right? So he goes, watch these matches that Terry Funk and Bruiser Brody throw in this wild brawl in uh, Tokyo. These are some of the best punches you will ever see. And I watched it and I was you know, very impressed. I saw that what Brody was actually throwing was not so much a punch, but a really forcefully thrown, animated, highly animated chop to the top of the head. And in an era when most of the men and women in the business had long hair, that was pretty easy to do. But the Terry Funk punch, we'll save that for another time. I learned the ma mystique and the majesty of the Terry Funk punch, and it was one of the biggest this, the de Well, I might as well tell you what it is now, right? It was one of the biggest disappointments because when I finally get to field the Terry Funk punch for the very first time, and I see him rear back at Budokan Hall, the first time I wrestled Terry is my final match for uh, Giant Baba's All Japan Wrestling. I think it was uh, April 1991. He rears back the very first thing, and I'm like, here it comes, here it comes, and I feel like Ralphie, uh, you know, like <laughs> the Christmas story, <laughs> like, here comes the Red Rider, and it was just like, boom! And Terry just punched me as hard as he could, or seemingly yes. as hard as he could in the head, and then I was so disillusioned, I was like, that's the magic? Hit him. That's it? So afterwards, I like, I don't know where I felt I could yell at Terry Funk, but afterwards, like, that's it? That's all you do? You just punch people really hard? Anyone can do that. I can do that. And Terry just looks at me and goes, Ah, oh, Cactus, all this time you thought I was good. <laughs> <laughs> but the other part of the puzzle is on that same video that Brian gave me with Brody and Funk, I see Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid. And I realize... I can't. I can't brawl like Brody or Funk. I don't have the physical presence to do it. I can't, I can't fly and I can't wrestle technically like Dynamite Kid, but I can take elements of what I've seen with Brody and Funk, combine it with uh, Tommy Billington's willingness to launch his own body as a weapon, and I thought if I can do those things, I could create a hybrid style, and that's kind of what I did. So... Um, I was probably four or five months into my training at Danucci's when uh, Brian gave me that uh, tape and it would made a profound difference and there was a marked improvement right away. So if we can back up just a little bit, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the military earlier, like were your parents supportive of your wrestling dream or what was that like? <clears throat> my parents were supportive. There's a story in Have a Nice Day about when uh, my buddy Scott Dara and I were trying to take a, uh, a bus to uh, New York City to watch uh, Snooka and Morocco in the cage. And my parents later said they could just tell I was a little too quick to see them off because they were going to visit my brother in Indiana where he's going to school. Okay, see you later, Mom. See you later, Dad. And uh, so Scott and I just kind of like hightailed it, like this little slope. And then about 20 minutes later, my <laughs> Scott goes, Mick, your parents are still here. They were like looking around the premises because they realized that I was in too big of a hurry to go. So I did end up taking a, a bus back to college about 250 miles from New York 
And then uh, on the day of the, the cage match, I took a, I hitchhiked back. I took a bus 40 miles from Cortland to Binghamton, then I stuck out my thumb, and I was able to scalp one ticket and get good seats, and the rest, they say, is uh, history. And I think somewhere along the way, you're, uh, I read in your book that your dad knew that there was wrestling oh, coming to the yeah. school. Oh, yeah, yeah. So first of all, uh, when I had made my weekly call after the match, my dad goes, uh, so uh, how was the show? And I go, what show? He goes, the wrestling show at Madison Square Garden. And he was calling my bluff, and I went, how did you know? And he goes, Mick, I could see you <laughs> with the flannel shirt in <laughs> about the fifth or sixth row. I was like, oh, Dad, I couldn't miss it. I couldn't miss it. He was very supportive. First of all, he told my brother. Uh, my dad and my mom told my brother they weren't that worried because they thought as soon as I got hurt, I'd be out of there. Right. If they were waiting for that to be they'd the— still be Yeah, waiting. they'd still be waiting. But when it was clear this is something I wanted, they just made sure it was clear to me. And they talked to Dominic about this. You know, it may have been the only time they talked to Dominic until I think Dominic came over our house for a biography or something. Um, it, you know, it was understood that it, you know, the caveat was I had to stay in college. And I just, be, right before I left, part of the reason I was late here was I was polishing off a couple cameo videos. And one of them was a congratulations for graduating high school, and they wanted me to give them kind of a pep talk for college. And so I was just talking about how it was really wrestling that gave me a focus. So yes. I wasn't advocating becoming a wrestler, but I was advocating that they really, he really take advantage of everything that's there and how pivotal joining uh, college radio and college TV, the, the radio more than the TV, because when you get those reps in, even though you're not cutting promos, you're getting used to talking, you're getting used to not being nervous about, uh, you know, I think it's, some ways it's more difficult to talk in front of one or two people than it is in front of a, a big crowd. Uh, I go back to the uh, dark side of the ring with Herb Abrams where I said, uh, you know, it was actually like a kind of a light swipping, uh, switching, flipping moment in UFC when I realized I was no longer like embarrassed to talk and cut promos in front of the crew who have seen it all and done it all. It's easy to go out there and get hyped up in front of a live crowd. A lot harder to get that character and make it ring authentic when it's just in front of a camera guy and a sound man who have literally seen 10,000 of these things. So the, uh, the idea of Mr. Danucci coming into your life, how does that come to be? Comes to be because, um, man, you know, I, I did that, <laughs> I did the uh, Legend of Frank Foley and The Loved One, the sequel. Um, when I did the, this is going back to my dad being the athletic director, and he goes, Mick, we have wrestling coming to uh, uh, Ward Melville. He said, I talked to the promoter, told him I had a son who was interested. He said, if you can make it to the show, He'll talk to you. So I come down to the show, and I guess it pays to be nice, because when I was a senior in high school, I was always good to the underclassmen. And we talked a little bit about the philosophies in wrestling about making life tough on new people, as opposed to accepting them you know, and respecting them a little more readily. So I always was the latter guy because I knew I reacted better to a pat on the back than a kick in the butt, and that's the way I treated people. So these now, now the the seniors in school who were coming in from their uh, um, uh, March would be, I guess, technically be your spring sports, right? 
even though it's not yet spring, they were like, do you have that tape? Do you have that tape? Word had circulated about this movie we'd made, The Loved One. So Tommy D, the first, he's the promoter, the first time he sets eyes on me is when a group of about 50 highly enthusiastic student athletes are cheering on everything we do in what was really a lame movie, but it's the idea of perception. I look at Tommy D when we're doing our, our little montage of wrestling matches, which actually was not badly done, especially for that time and era where the different, <laughs> the different <laughs> videos are zooming in. Yes. Where I haven't, there was no Photoshop, so it's just me cutting out a photo of my face and putting it on Paul Ellering's face so I look like I'm a member of the Road Warriors. I love it. You know, it's me, you know, with as Don, Don Morocco with the belt, but I've got my face on there. And Tommy D is smiling and laughing. For the record, the only time I ever saw Tommy D smiling and laughing, and the first thing he does is ask me if I want to be on his ring crew. Wow. So I go on the ring crew, and he tells me that <clears throat> if I get the ring set up in time before the fans come in, he'll have Danucci train me. And I think he may have told Dominic that I was a relative, which was a little bit of a fib. But that's how I began that quest. You know, it was uh, <clears throat> 250 miles one way um, where I was solely responsible for taking the ring out of a storage unit. I'd never heard of a, a wrestling promoter who kept their ring in a storage unit. So I had to take everything down by myself, piece by piece, into a freight elevator. No help. Bring it down. No help at first. As time went on, they did have another guy named Charlie who helped me out, but he never actually went to the uh, the unit to un unload it's it. It's normally a two-man job. It's though, a two-man right? job, and Literally. usually it's in a dedicated truck yes. or trailer. You don't usually have to take it out and get it put into the trailer. So I was, I remember being so exhausted that I started cutting deals with myself while I was driving, like, okay, I'm just gonna close my eyes for three seconds while I drive. One of the worst deals you could possibly the cut. Worst. And one time I was so tired that I showed up at my college uh, housemate's uh, house unannounced and asked if I could take a nap. And when I returned home, my friend Steve was like, you effing weirdo. <laughs> well. <laughs> Goes, it is weird. Leave my family alone, you effing weirdo. And they so that that was my rap is that I was a weirdo. Is that I would never admit I was what I was doing when I was wrestling, but I would go off to the park to practice my bumps, and I would set up like a garbage can, and I would do like the little half a flip over the garbage can and land on my back, and it would knock the wind out of me. You know, every third time, but I was getting used to making those landings, and I hear out of the like darkness. You effing weirdo. <laughs> you effing weirdo. A new t-shirt available now. <laughs> yeah, listen, there are worse things to be called. And this is what I realized. And there was also a moment <clears throat> when I had my first date in high school when I was a, I was a college senior. And man, I was just gaga over this girl. We went on one date where I took her to see uh, First Blood. Nothing more romantic than a good Stallone action movie. And it was a very romantic evening, not capped off by a kiss, but it was my first incident with hand-holding, which I, you know, was the height of romance to me. And the next day, my friends asked her, like, how was the date, how was the date? And she goes, I really like him, but I hear he's strange. And that was essentially the end of that relationship, because apparently my behavior did uh, reinforce the rumors she had heard about me. But the happy 
ending is that the things that made me seem weird in high school and college are the same things that made me successful in wrestling. Right. So if there's a moral to the story and you're out there and, uh, uh, and I know that I would say more kind of misfits right. will listen into my show because they feel the connection yes. the same way that they, especially with the latter day mankind character. If someone's out there and they're listening and they don't feel like they fit in, I say this as a proud uh, father, you know, autism, I'm an autism dad, even though my son Mickey's doing spectacularly well. Embrace those differences. Yes. Embrace your weirdness, unless it's really, truly weird, you know, and, you know, maybe keep that behind closed doors. But uh, embrace the things that make you different, because those ultimately are the things that make you interesting, and in my case, made me successful. Well said. I'm curious what your first impressions were of Mr. Danucci. Oh, man. Well, this is a story, again, for those of you who have seen, but very few people have seen the show relative to yeah. who listens in. The first thing he told me, why I felt like I had to go search New York City for an amateur singlet, I don't know. You know, I was about 235 at that time. You know, not heavy, heavy, but certainly not. I was never ripped, you know. Right. <clears throat> and it, so I, I wasn't looking like a, a, a Greek statue I'm sorry about the <clears throat> the uh, the the cough here. A little frog in my throat. Uh, the first thing Danucci said, I think we were in Brooklyn. He goes, "Okay, kid, show me a forearm." And I thought, I know how to do this. I've watched a lot of wrestling. This is before Terry Funk punched me. Before I trained at Danucci's at all. Um, and so I rear back, you know, arm way up high with the foot coinciding. And when I bring the forearm down making little or no contact with his torso, I also bring my foot down for the stop. stop. And he looks at me and goes, do you think that's a rest? And I thought it was a trick question, because I thought, yeah, this is exactly what it is, and I've watched a lot of wrestling. And he turns me around in the corner, so my back's up against the turnbuckle, and his arm goes way up high and comes down and makes complete and total contact yes. with my torso what would be my pectoralis muscles if I had them. Right. And he just did it about 20, 25 times. Never hit me in the collarbone, never hit me in the jaw, never hit me in the ribs, all across the torso. And he goes, yeah, you think, you want to rest, not you, you want to rest, you want to rest, you want to rest. And, and I slumped down, you know, as he was hitting me to where I ended up on my butt, just sitting there, a wind all out of me. And he looks at me, goes, that, my boy, is a rest. So imagine you think you know everything there is to know, and then you find out in 20 seconds that you know absolutely nothing. That was my first impression of Dominic. But we, uh, we worked hard. Uh, we, I learned no offense for my first like six sessions. Uh, and finally, I, I gained his respect. One day he says to me, calls me aside. Uh, and we've probably been at this about three, four months. Um, there's probably two weekends of shows a month, but the problem is I don't always get the ring set up before the fans are there, especially when I'm doing it by myself. So where there were times I was coming in, making the $25, which barely didn't pay for gas. If it did, it barely paid for it. Certainly doesn't pay for a hotel. And I'm not even getting a, a lesson in. But Danucci on that day was teaching me the backdrop 
and which was at the time like the height of any good babyface's uh, comeback. And as a heel, if you could start taking good backdrops, that was kind of the key to getting booked, was to be able to take bumps for the babyfaces. And the only way, unfortunately, to learn how to take a good backdrop is to take a lot of bad backdrops, almost every one of which knocks the wind out of you. So he sat me down and he goes, my boy, today, he goes, I beat the shit out of you. And he goes, you never complain. You take 25 backdrop. And then he gives me the first compliment that he's ever given me because he wasn't real big on back padding. He goes, my boy, you have a ball. And he makes it out to be like volleyball size, this big. And then when we had like a big star come in, uh, like Afa was a guy, Cowboy Bobby Duncan was a guy, uh, uh, a few other guys would come in. The first thing he goes, this is a Mickey, he's a green, but he's got a ball. <laughs> and so I really earned his respect. He told me about some guys he was training in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh. And so I've said this before, Conrad, if I possessed a GPS at that time, or I'd even had a Rand McNally Atlas, and I'd seen that Pittsburgh was 300 miles from my school, 350, I think. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be here because I would not have done it. But I'd already made the commitment, and I, I, there was a time. I know it seems like I'm jumping subjects, but I got to know Pennsylvania really well when I was on Boy Meets World, and uh, uh, one of the characters is saying, or Topanga is saying to uh, the. Um, uh, her boyfriend there, uh, you guys had, what's that? Corey. Corey, Corey, yeah. You have no idea what what he did or she did. He or she drove 100 miles to Pittsburgh and the show's supposed to be set in Philadelphia. So I go over to the director, I go, yeah, Pittsburgh's 300 miles from Philadelphia. And they go, no, I go, trust me. I know this stuff driven all over the state. And in the end, they did not take my idea. They used the Even They used the 100. And I was like, I told them it was 300. And they just didn't <clears throat> listen. So it was a lot of driving. It was a guy without any money. You know, I spent $100. I had about $150 to my name. I spent about 100 of it on that first trip. And then I realized, brother, if I'm going to do this, I've got to learn to uh, stretch a dollar, and I turned that into an art form. So I had it down to about $15, maybe 20, including the $14 motel, because I'd go to the ride board, I'd find out who was going to Penn State, who might be going somewhere else in Pennsylvania, and sometimes we'd have two or three people in that car, you know, making trips. So I was covering my gas money and a little bit of my hotel by, by driving people to visit boyfriends or girlfriends. Man, if there's one thing we know, it's that Mick Foley knows how to save money. And how about this? Rocket Money makes it easier. Have you ever had uh, maybe a subscription you signed up for that you forgot about? Lord yeah, knows we've all done that. Yeah. I did it during the pandemic. It turns out both my wife and I, Mick, signed up for Hulu, but we watched TV together. We didn't need two Hulu There you accounts. go. I didn't even know that that was the case, though. But Rocket Money showed me that and a whole heck of a lot more. And we've all heard these gimmicks, right? Try it free for 30 days. Well, that's just enough time to try it and then forget about it. And it turns out like over 80% of Americans have subscriptions that they forgot about. And you may not even know how much you're actually spending. You see, most people think it's like $60, $80 a month. It's closer to 200 
And if you don't know exactly how much it is, you need rocket money. It's a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and it helps you lower your bills all in one place. You see rocket money will quickly and easily find all of your subscriptions for you. And if there's any that you don't want anymore, you just hit cancel and bam, rocket money takes care of the rest. They'll cancel it for you. It's just that easy. They'll also help you manage all of your finances in one place and rocket money will automatically categorize your expenses. So you can easily track your budget in real time. You'll also get alerted if anything looks off over 3 million people have used rocket money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Mick Foley in 1985 could have lived on that for years. Stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash Foley. That's rocketmoney.com slash Foley rocketmoney.com slash Foley. Boy, Mick, we yeah. finally got a sponsor talking about saving money. That oh, just goes together with you like peas and carrots. That's incredible. And while you were talking, I, uh, I put a thick layer of Lumi on the Grillo's nether region. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so we got that done, too. Well, that's exciting. Um, <laughs> I love these old Dominic Danucci stories, and it shows really your dedication and your passion. I'm curious, you know, when it comes to, you know, this trek you're having to make, do your parents know this time and travel commitment? Or are they still supportive? They do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're supportive. I think they're realizing, having come from a generation where, you know, things were really tough. My mom grew up on a farm and, uh, you know, they were really some lean years coming out of the uh, depression when my, my mom was born. Uh, so, so they appreciated that I was building character. They also appreciated that my grades were going up dramatically. Like that was the deal. I had to keep up with my grades. So before Shane Douglas like uh, took pity on me and started letting me stay with him and his mom on Saturday nights, I was usually in the car Friday night sleeping. If I made it uh, all the way, I would uh, just pull into the Freedom uh, Elementary School. If I made it only halfway, I had two sleeping bags in the back. I would sleep in the parking lot of a hotel. And Saturday nights was usually the $14 Admiral Perry uh, Motor Lodge, uh, which is uh, now a Toyota dealership. Uh, if I was feeling really good and I had a few extra dollars to burn, I'd get the $20 Motel 6. But it was almost always the $14 Admiral Perry Motor Lodge. But when uh, Troy Martin, you know, Shane, yeah. Shane Douglas, he and I really started clicking in the gym. And if there's, I have a few regrets, you know, about things I wrote in the first book. But one of them is that I said that some of the other guys seemed like they were just there to hang out. And that's not fair to them. Because the truth is, when two guys or four guys are in the ring, it's only, you know, it's, I think it's indicative of the camaraderie we had that people did have fun while yes. they were there and they joked around. Uh, but Shane and I, we would set up spots that we wanted to work on. And uh, I remember Danucci, uh, again, not being someone who was real, uh, I don't want to phrase this the wrong way. He wasn't somebody who would compliment you often or pat you on the back. But when Shane and I had a good 12 to 15 minute match to open up a show for uh, Bill Watts's UWF, a little geography lesson here and uh, uh, economics lesson that when the oil towns that were really the the, yeah. the, the lifeblood the of, the life of the promotion started having trouble, Watts tried to take advantage of this great syndicated television package he had by running live shows where the where the syndicated show was popular. And one of those areas was Ohio, West Virginia, Western Pennsylvania. 
And so Shane and I would open the shows, and that gave me a chance to meet Terry Taylor and Buddy Jack Roberts and uh, Chris Adams, who I ended up having what I would say was like my first really good match with a star. But they saw what Shane and I were doing, and, uh, you know, Terry Taylor said, like, you'd make a great middle heel. He didn't say you're going to come in and be a huge star. Right. But he thought that Shane and I, Shane was seen as being the the better baby prospect. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the baby face, but uh, they, for people like that, for Buddy Roberts, who'd been around forever, Chris Adams, who would uh, kind of take me under his wing, especially in uh, Dallas, to have that kind of praise, it helped me believe in myself. Yeah. But the moment we walked in, uh, Shane and I, I think we were changing like in a elementary school classroom in 100 West Virginia. He goes, my boys, you can take that match anywhere in the world. And that was really high praise. So looking back, if we had a chance to see that match, we might be like, geez, that's a two-star match at best. But by the standards of the times, it was a really good independent match. And it helped open up the doors to further things. I just, uh, I love hearing about the early beginnings because it would have been so easy. I mean, we you've heard all these horror stories about guys training and you know, they get abused, yeah. and somebody breaks their leg, and we're going to teach them a lesson. Or maybe like the Undertaker's experience. I think Buzz Sawyer took his money and then just left town. Just like, left. And in my case, I somehow had been told that it was $100 per lesson per day, and I knew I didn't have that. So at the end of the first weekend, Danucci goes, how much do you think you should pay? And I thought, I can't afford $100. So I said, 50 and he shakes his head and says, no, he goes, that's too much. Oh, wow. He says, 25. It may have been for the day, may have been for the weekend. At the end of the year, he came to me, or maybe it was eight, nine months, and he goes, he goes, he goes, Mickey, he goes, you come here, you sleep in your car, you come out of your car with snow all around, you look like a bear coming out of hibernation. He goes, you've been paying me for eight months. He goes, that's enough. Right. No more. And you contrast that with the guys, the horror stories you hear about. A, there are trainers who don't know how to train. And B, there are people who just are looking to take your money. Even when it came to the boots, my first pair of boots, I said, uh, how much? And he goes, $25. $25 for a pair of boots that ha had to have cost them 100 150 Right. And he's given to me for 25 and I still have those boots. Really? They were brought back to me from the uh, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and. Uh, Texas, and I yeah. may end up, sorry about that, loaning them to the new Hall of Fame in uh, Albany, New York. It's amazing. I um, I want to learn, you know, when you said you, you did all defense, like no offense for months, was there one thing, was there one bump or one fundamental that you really struggled with? Yeah. <clears throat> I had no athleticism or very little athleticism. And so for me, there was a limit, and there was ultimately a limit on what I could do, but the ceiling was much higher than I realized. So Danucci, uh, on one day, he, uh, when the class is over, he says he wants me to stay behind, and I'm not going to leave until I can do a sunset flip. And I'm like, Dominic, I can't, I can't do this. And he made me believe that I was capable of it. And whether it was the sunset flip in the middle of the ring or the sunset flip coming over, you know, over the top ropes, one or the other, when I was able to accomplish it, 
I mean, I had about, it was in, in the age of the 55 mile, hour, uh, 55 mile hour speed limit, which is pretty strictly adhered to. It was about a seven and a half hour drive for me to go back to school. And uh, I felt like I was flying on the way home because I had no idea I was capable of that. The number of times that you saw me using a sunset flip, unless Rare. it was Rare. off the ring apron or the second turnbuckle, very minimal. But uh, those are the moments. And there was also the Whopper that I served up to my college housemates. The Whopper being uh, that I had a girlfriend in Pittsburgh who I was visiting every weekend. And uh, one day, uh, Steve and my other friend Jake are there to meet me when I come in. And they go, we know what you've been doing. I said, what do you mean? They said, you've been wrestling. I said, how can you say that? I said, I'll tell you how we can say that. You leave every Friday. <laughs> with two sleeping bags. <laughs> you come home every Sunday, you're all bruised up, you smell like shit, because you have fast food wrappers all over the front car, front front seat. And I go, what's that mean? He goes, we think you're wrestling. No, and I made a pact to myself that I wasn't going to tell anybody until I had my first match. And I denied it until I came back uh, after uh, not only had I had my first match with Kurt Kaufman, but then against the Bulldogs and against uh, the Killer Bees for WWF, came home, I had a concussion, my jaw is dislocated. Uh, because my jaw is dislocated when I took a simple backdrop with the Killer Bees, my mouth didn't close correctly, so I knocked two of my teeth in but not out, uh, and I was in a pretty bad way. Uh, and when I came home, they were like waiting for me. They're like, we know you've been wrestling, your name's Catfish Jake. And then I was like, yes, I have. I've been wrestling all along. But that was a secret that I didn't share with anybody for about eight or nine months because I felt like it would be pretty easy to derail me, to point out all my uh, flaws and all the reasons why I would not be successful. They were great guys, but they were not guys I thought who were going to provide me with any belief in myself, and I needed desperately to hold on to that belief in myself. Non-fans oftentimes take a look at the wrestling ring and they think, oh, it's just a trampoline. I don't know what you thought. I want to hear what you thought the wrestling ring would feel like the first time you were getting ready to step inside it, and then tell me about the reality of the first time you actually felt it. Well, you know when I talked about Danucci and that being a rude awakening in um, – in Brooklyn, yeah. but going back to that first night when W, uh, no, when Tommy D Promotions was at Ward Melville High School, I did help set up the ring that day, you know. But there were two or three other people doing it, and when it got set up, I was like, I need to know. So I yes. kind of threw my own head into the turnbuckle and took a bump backwards. And my first thought was, you got to be effing kidding me, because I was seeing stars. Maybe my first wrestling concussion right off the bat because I didn't know how to take a bump. Right. So when I went backwards, boom, head off the mat, star, like serious stars and serious headache. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I can do this. Right. So there are some, I mean, I set up Tommy D's ring and it had a, a spring. Yeah. So there'd be a little bit of give and make a, some extra noise as compared to this one moment in the Arquette documentary where they're in Mexico. He takes a bump and my son Huey turns to me and goes, Dad, that seems like concrete. Like the ring did not give at all. Yes. And a lot of times when you're beginning, you're, re you're wrestling in old boxing rings, oh. which notoriously have little give. But one of the 
first things that any prospective wrestler finds out is those ropes hurt a oh. lot. A lot. I guess you just get used to it because they stop bruising you. Right, I don't know what the secret is. I mean, one of the things you got to hit it underneath your armpit. Um, when I, I was, Danucci had a fairly small ring. I think it was only 14 feet. Oh, wow. And the ropes were a little bit lower than WWF or WCW rings. And every time I hit them, I was hitting them right underneath my rib cage, right in the, I believe that's the liver or the kidney. Should okay. know. And, um, and I was peeing blood. Wow. And it was so sensitive. And any any guy who's broken into wrestling is probably nodding their head. Yeah. It would be like just that little bit of a touch. Oh, my God, it hurt so bad. And the other injury I had was when I was learning to take the bumps with the, you know, with the swipe of the arms, which, first of all, I don't think is as realistic because I think there's a sense that you're protecting yourself yeah. as you're going down. But the main reason I started taking my flat back bumps differently, where I was absorbing it on the back of my uh, tri yeah, shoulders, triceps, when I went down, I would go down like almost like a T, was because that bone, that elbow was so sensitive, I actually had a hockey pad on it. So I had a bunch of Achilles heels to begin with. I had the really sensitive elbow bone. I had the, uh, the kidney damage. And, uh, and then as I find out, you know, against Dynamite Kid, you know, that my, I didn't know until years and years later what was happening is my jaw would get dislocated. And instead of having it pop back in, I would just live without the ability to chew food for a few weeks until it somehow eased its way back in. Um, so. And you did all of this with Stinky Nuts. No, because I was only 220 at oh, that okay, time. Okay. Yeah, Stinky yeah, yeah. Nuts will come Stinky later. Stinky Nuts didn't come. This is a relatively new phenomenon in my life. I'm yeah, ahead. I relatively you. new phenomenon, as in the past year and a half. But <laughs> now, I, Lumi is the knock wood is has thus far been the solution to both problems. Tell me about Dominic's. Uh, you wrote about this rule, the no punch kick rule. Oh yeah, my first match. Uh, I think uh, I had taken a couple weeks off training. Um, when I went home from college, uh, and then when I came back, I ended up subletting an apart, uh, a house with a couple college students in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, where the University of Pittsburgh is. Um, but when I returned, I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't trained in a couple weeks, and I thought I'm going to have a chance to get my first match by dipping my toe into the shallow end of the pool, and then 10 minutes, be, I was going to be in a battle royal. Easiest way to get into the bit, you know, to have your first match. And 10 minutes before we go out, there goes a Mickey and a Kurt, a 10 minutes, a no kick, no punch. And I defy any long-term fan of mine to find a match where for a 10-minute period I don't throw right. a kick or a punch. And this is where I was so lucky that I had a high spot worked out. Me and Kurt had worked on it earlier that day leapfrog drop kick, which this is something like when I realized, when I thought of this spot, I was like, what a stroke of genius this is. Now the truth is, if any guy does a leapfrog drop kick on AEW or WWE, they're probably going to be looking for a job the next day. Like if that's the best you can do, your best isn't good enough. But I, I called the spot in the ring like a pro. I think well ahead of time, hey, let's do that leapfrog drop kick we talked about. And I didn't realize I sat sent Kurt into the ropes that the leapfrog is one of the few moves <laughs> that can have interpretation applied to it because Kurt be, could be coming off the ropes, leapfrogging 
a, so does he want to do it or does he want exactly to do it? yes and i did not specify yeah so you're both jumping i okay. no no even worse we've both <laughs> been down oh. i go bend down for the backdrop kurt bends down thinking i'm leapfrogging over him and it's like boom two rams just two rams on our mating ritual staggered fell on my butt and now i get angry even though i had no position to be angry you're hurt and now embarrassed embarrassed leapfrog drop kick Again, failing to specify which Ooh. one of us would be leaping. So how should you call that? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> still to this day, we don't know. I don't know. You, uh, hey, I mean, you look, drop kick, me drop kick. Look, this is my, you know, the, I don't think I've ta talked about my pet peeve. Uh, in my, my pet peeve, and when I do the occasional seminar, I say that, look, there is no reason to bend over in the ring unless no. you're doing a back body drop. Yes. And in or because so many moves come off an opponent bending over in the ring, the only way that makes sense to me is to establish the back body drop as a premier offensive weapon of choice, which it is absolutely not anymore. Right. Someone like AJ Styles can take a phenomenal backdrop. Yes. But no pun intended. But by and large, you don't see backdrops no. because they don't look anywhere near as impressive as they used to. Right. But by God, I think for the good of the match and the business, you have to have a reason to bend over. And it has to be sold as if it's a big deal. That's just, to me, that's because there is no other move that would require. And, and, if, and also, if you're bending over, you have to bend over there the same way you would when you do a back body drop. Yeah. So I'm as guilty, and maybe not as guilty as everyone else, but I certainly did my share of neck breakers off the bat, you know. But even at that time, the backdrop was used enough to where it made sense. Just my old man, get off my lawn, you kids, pet peeve at this point with the product, is that you need to reestablish that backdrop unless you are just outright stupid to be bending over in the middle of a match to do something that has zero chance of working. Well, I feel like we should uh, give everyone a reason to bend over, and it's because he has a ball this big. And if you want a ball this big, you got to go to BlueChew.com. <laughs> Today's episode and Mr. Danucci's rant about Mick Foley's groin area are brought to you by BlueChew.com. BlueChew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. Take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple. You'll sign up at BlueChew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed Conrad, medical providers. The opportunity won't be the only thing that's arising. Come on now. <laughs> Let's go. Let's get your ding-dongs hard, boys and girls. Once you're approved, you'll get that prescription within a few days. And the best part, it's all done online. No visits to the doctor's office. No awkward conversation. No waiting in line at the pharmacy. And these Blue Chew tablets are made right here in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. But there'll be nothing discreet about your package. Come on. Think of it as like a <laughs> hot tag for your wiener. <laughs> and Blue Chew wants to help you have better sex. Discover your options at BlueChew.com. Chew it and do it. You'll have a ball this big. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Foley. At checkout, just pay the $5 shipping. That is fully tested, fully approved. How do you beat free? That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Foley. You receive your first month free 
Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring the podcast. Yeah. And the highest uh, uh, flattery I can give BlueChew is that Mrs. Foley has forbid me from using it. So there you oh, go. There so you, you know go. it works. That's a ball <laughs> this big. You know it works. Uh, let's talk about Cactus Jack. Yeah. Uh, I love the. I want to hear the origins. Right? I've read it in your book. I mean, I, we've all seen the the idea of dude love. Yeah. But you're not going to start with that. I yeah. And the the origin of the name Cactus Jack has to make you smile. Share that with us. It is. It's a yeah. It's a fun story. Um, uh, I think in '82 or '83, I ordered some kind of wrestling game out of the back of Pro Wrestling Illustrated or one of the George Napolitano magazines. Uh, and it would come to your house, and it was like the first of the wrestling board or strategy yes. games. Um, and they did not use wrestlers' real, you know, their their gimmick names, but they would be close enough so that you knew who they were talking about. And the move sets would be very similar, like a Dusty Rhodes instead. It would have a different name. Yes. Instead of Bionic Elbow, they might call it the Titanic Elbow, but it was clearly Dusty's move set. But there were a few optional cards where you could create your own characters. And uh, uh, my dad's name was Jack, Jack Foley. And so I uh, created a character named Cactus Jack. At that time, like a lot of teenagers, you know, 17-year-olds, 16, 17-year-olds, I wasn't having an easy time communicating with my dad. But wrestling was that bridge, as right. it has been to so many people. And it's such a wonderful thing about wrestling. Yes. Right? For everyone who dislikes it or dismisses it out of hand, it's like, then you're dismissing the entire intergenerational relationship that wrestling improves. And yes. I believe in that wholeheartedly. So we watched wrestling together. We played uh, uh, this wrestling game where he was Cactus Jack. And uh, the other second part of the equation is that my friends would never really like feel comfortable in my house because my dad was the athletic director and was seen as something of a, you know, a disciplinarian uh, and a hard ass, I think it'd be safe to say. Uh, and uh, I told my friends, no, no, he's not like that. Like at home, it's completely different. Like he likes to be called Cactus Jack specifically because I wanted to see the look on my dad's face when one of my friends came over and called him Cactus Jack. I love that. <laughs> so I was just looking for one of my friends to have an unfortunate experience with my dad. When I say a hard ass, I, you know, I was never struck. Uh, I mean, I got the, the wooden spoon a few times, but I, like after the age of four, I don't think there was ever any need to, you know, like the wooden, my mom would go to the wooden spoon. Okay, mom, you know, we did. Begging off. Uh, begging off. Spoon. Begging off. But my dad, he could make an entire section of high school students like sit down with just a glance. He didn't allow any stomping of the bleachers, you know, which every school does. Yes. The Ward Melville fans started stomping and they were like tough guys with their first dates or whatever. And my, he'd give them a look, that whole section. It's amazing. Of, he had that. Command. So the Cactus Jack name was a way to honor my dad, a way hopefully to make one of my friends, uh, put one of my friends in a really awkward position. And it was also like the most generic name I could find. Taken, where, you know, from the uh, 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 Kirk Douglas role in Arnold Schwarzenegger's first movie. It was called The Villain. And now, in re recent re-releases, it's known as Cactus Jack. 
because the character was so much fun, the name Slade, Cactus Jack Slade. And so I, I just took that name, borrowed it from that movie. I was Cactus Jack Foley, so my original autographs have Cactus in like parentheses, not parentheses, quotation marks. Yes. Cactus Jack Foley. And uh, I was just going to be Cactus Jack until I felt like I'd learned enough to become Dude Love. And I knew that could take a while. I was, I was pretty uh, realistic about that. So at uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, at the Clarksburg Armory. I love this. Uh, it's such a great, it's such, you know, where else but, you know, yeah. wrestling. Uh, ring announcer Hank Hudson asked me my name. I said, I'm Cactus Jack. He said, where are you from? I said, Bloomington, Indiana, which is where I was born. <laughs> Hank happens to work full-time. His real job is in a post office. He goes, there are no cactuses in Indiana. He goes, what about Tucson, Arizona? And then he goes, wait, I think there's a truth or consequences, Arizona. And then he corrects himself within seconds. He goes, actually, that's truth or consequences, New Mexico. And I went, that's it. And that became, I think, one of the great fictitious. Yes. It's a real place. And I've and stayed there. Name, yeah, too. it's such a great name. It used to be known as uh, Hot Springs because of, you know, fabled hot springs I, I bathed in just uh, this past summer. Um, and I think the deal was if Bob Barker came to town, they agreed to change the name to Truth or Consequences, or T or C as the locals call it. And I told that fib for so many years that the good people of Truth or Consequences came to accept me as one of their own, actually put my uh, photo in like the trophy cabinet, oh, wow. even though there was no record of me ever having stepped foot in T or C until just a few years ago. Did you, uh, it was popular back then. I don't know that it's as important now, but I know it still exists. Did you work your height or weight? Because they used to say, you know, standing so-and-so, yeah. such and such. Well, I was a legit 6'4", right? So, so and you I, were cool with sticking with I was cool six. with 6'4", but they usually just announced your, your weight. I see. And I think at the, my, the time of my first match, I was 220. I didn't really have much to eat. You know, I didn't have really a lot of money, and and Shane Douglas, bless his heart, he was you know really he was into the dieting and the uh, nutrition, and so Shane would sometimes help me out on the food aspect, but I was relatively you know light two twenty six, and I think in the history of WWF WWE, I'm the only guy to come in being billed as being shorter than he is, because I've always struck people as being like five ten. And there are times when I'm in the ring with someone who's 6'4", like, like Triple H, yeah. and I look to be about six inches shorter. But the, all the characters, except maybe Dude, who was loud and proud, you know, Mankind especially was gnarled over. And then you take the gnarled over aspect and combine it with working with Undertaker or Kane. Right. And I look to be 10 inches shorter instead of, you know, five inches shorter. Right. Especially when I first came to WWE, I had lifts put into my boots and I would go out to learn to walk on these lifts. And it felt pretty pretty powerful to be 6'7 or so. Then I realized, hold on a second. If they wanted a guy who was 6'7, there are a lot of guys like that. They're hiring me to get into Undertaker's head. Yes. And I can best do that by, you know, not using a wedge that, uh, you know, stymies my already greatly stymied physical abilities. Let's talk about uh, when you get this big landmark opportunity. I know you're trying to pay your dues and you're making towns, and we'll spend more time talking about that some other time. But I think when anybody thinks about your first 
you know, run and wrestling when you're first cutting your teeth. We've all heard about Dominic Danucci. I love that we have the origin of the name now, but then somehow, some way he gets you, it gets a hold of you. Dominic does and says, Hey, Vince needs some guys for TV. He sure does. And you find yourself a part of this thing that you used to hitchhike for <laughs> and stay home on the weekends. Yeah, yeah. And Oh my God, it's happening, but it's probably not the experience you hoped for. Talk us through your first WWE taping. Yeah, we go in for first mistake we make is we get a $120 hotel room because we don't, we don't have a reservation. We don't, we don't get something out of town. We go into the middle of Providence, Rhode Island, and 120 at that time, that's a pretty expensive hotel room. Yeah. So when we gave the receipt, the first thing is $120. And then I think it was uh, Chief Jay goes, well, they did have three people in the room. And that's what you know got us a pass on the, uh, the large bill. But I see my name up there against uh, the Bulldogs. I'm excited, not nervous as I should be, but I'm more excited because I, I love Dynamite and I love the Bulldogs, right? They're such an amazing tag team. And Pat Patterson, you know, name, Cactus Jack, we got to lose that. Okay, Jack Foley. Um, and because you got to lose I had the headband on, I think it was a leopard print bandana. So I just come out as Jack Foley. But uh, uh, Shane Douglas at that time was doing a really good snap suplex. I would say second, I'm talking about in the business. What? Only to Dynamite Kid, because wow. that was, he was the only person. He's the gold standard. Yeah, he's the gold standard. And I was like, do you think you'd give me the snap suplex? And he's like, in kind of nods. I remember Davey saying, well, we're going to do a lot of fun stuff out there. And I was like, okay, good, good. And they kind of look at each other, smiling, and they ask me, how many matches have you had? I said, one. I didn't even exaggerate, one. And I want to take a snap suplex. So I think in their minds, okay, we got uh, the ultimate greenhorn here. Who thinks he can call spots in the dressing room? The only way we're going to make this look good is by you know doing a little number on this guy for the sake of the business. And right off the bat, boom, snap suplex, pretty good one too. You know, like wow, this is good. The ring was unlike anything. It was harder, but yet it was somehow more professional. You know, the the old WWE rings were infamously you know difficult to land Stiff. on. Stiff. But that first one, it felt pretty good. And Dynamite drops the headbutt on me. And I'm just telling you, I'm not talented enough to have my eyes roll up in the back of my head as a cell job. He hit it for real. He hit it for real so hard that it was sensitive to the touch for about five months. Oh. I think that's just the way Dynamite did things. Damn. I get in there. Now Davey gets in, and Davey was the, uh, the more gentler of the two. More agreeable. <laughs> agreeable. And... He puts me in a side headlock, and I start trying to fight my way out of it with the worst foot stomps, through those, the worst elbows to the midsection. And as I'm doing that, I, you know, when I go back and watch the tape, I see Tommy Billington shaking the ropes, like I need to get He's in furious. here one more time with this guy. So I actually send Davey into the ropes and call my big spot elbow. That was my killer offensive move because I would kind of jump up in the air and spin around. And this time when I jump up in the air and spin around, I hear laughter, which was not what I was thinking. I look up and Davey's still standing. He didn't take a bump from my back elbow. He tags in dynamite. Brother, it'll be three weeks before I chew that solid food again. 
and he just sends me in. And there've been, you could find historically a thousand clotheslines that look more devastating. It was the fact that he followed me in and he hit me not across the, you know, the, the upper uh, breastplate, but right across the jaw with his bicep. I'd like to think I at least injured his, you know, bruised it or made him feel un- discomfort in some way. But right away, oh, my goodness, you know, that, that swelling. And then there's the back suplex off the top rope, which I didn't actually take in textbook form. Uh, my mom and dad were in the parking lot when I got to Hartford the next day. And my poor mom, who had been reading, except when I was in the ring, she just thought, like a lot of people do, that it's not real. Right. And she's looking at me, and she's seeing me, you know, and I'm concussed, and I'm not making a lot of sense. And she says, Mick, I thought this was supposed to be fake. And my line to her was, Mom, nothing has ever felt as real in my life. And I was really, you know, that was a really tough way to, that was a tough initiation. You know, and then, like I said, I took the back, regular backdrop from the bees, and instead of my mouth closing. So you worked the next day? Worked the next night, and to make matters worse. With a broken work, jaw? Yeah, well, uh, dislocated. Yeah. Dislocated, I get my front teeth knocked in, and to make matters even worse, I'm one of those guys who no matter what bump I take is pulling up his tights, oh. and I'm not wearing the singlet, you know, so it's the. Hadn't it, found Lane yeah, Bryant. Yeah, hadn't found Lane Bryant yet. Didn't realize the art of the cover-up, and... Um, had a really tough couple of days, but I do remember that when I came out uh, of that. Let me go back to the bulldog. For yeah, a when you come back to the back, you speak to the bulldogs. Yeah. how's that? I walk out? into their dressing room and they probably thought, "Oh, this guy's going to try to make an issue." And I go, "I just want to thank you very much. It was an honor to be in the ring with you." And uh, I think Davey's like, "I enjoyed it too," you know. <laughs> and, it, the the next night when I came into uh, the dressing room, and you learn, you know, what I've always gone out of my way when I was in WWE, at least to say hello and wish yes. people well. And I still remember the people who went out of their way just to say hello to me when I was in WWE, because most people don't. Uh, and I tried to be one of those guys to just ease their nerves a little bit. So the next night, I'm kind of in, it's not the jobber dressing room. There are some regulars in there, uh, but it is where the jobbers are. Or the enhancement talent. Yeah. And uh, I made a remark. Somebody asked about the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. And I mentioned that I had seen it. It was a good movie. And uh, Les Thornton, who had been my partner the night before, the man of a thousand holds, with whom the Bulldogs, you know, had wrestled many times and they start doing their technical stuff. It was only when that first minute of the match when I see... uh, uh, Davey and Les Thornton doing all this great technical wrestling. I was like, oh... I'm going to get killed out there. Like it dawns on me that that's my role in this thing. And Les Thornton was really highly respected. Uh, he didn't never got a push in WWE, but he was a highly respected wrestler around the world. And he goes, you kind of look like the fly out there last night, mate. And everyone laughed, but it was like I was in on the joke. I wasn't the joke. And it felt made me feel uh, welcome. A little more comfortable. Little more comfortable. Um, do any of the agents recognize... How rough you had it these two shows? Like, does Black Jack or somebody say, keep your head up, kid, or hope to see you again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I can't remember exactly. Right. Uh, you know, Dominic would tell, you know, he would be very honest about what his guys could do, and he had probably prefaced uh, the story by saying, uh, pointing out the circumference of my of my ball. 
which is always helpful. And I and how big is it? <laughs> this big. Yeah, there you go. This big. Um, it was really a rude awakening, tough initiation. But I remember being pretty down because I knew I'd been really bad in that match with the uh, Killer Bees. But a bunch of my buddies from high school had come to that show, and it was uh, right right when college was about to begin because I drove directly from uh, Hartford back to Cortland. And I saw my buddies. They were, like, not in the parking lot but right outside the parking lot. And they, when I came out, they met me with a hero's welcome because I had essentially done what I had told, you know, what I had told them. I mean, for them, it was a big deal to see this guy who'd been yes. diving on uh, off sand dunes and breaking into impromptu pro wrestling matches at parties. <laughs> I mean, and, and also, too, like, this is something, you know, we, we sort of gloss over this at the time, but this is in the middle of the WWF's boom. Like, yeah. It, they're on MTV. I believe, it's, no, this is before. I Wait, War to Settle It or uh, War to Settle the Score was, was 84. 84. Okay, so it is after that. WrestleMania is 85. But I believe this is the first time that they start taking the TV shows around the country to arenas. Even during that boom period, they were still going to Most the Hamburg Fieldhouse, uh, White Plains, set, you know, the white four, five, three to 5,000 seat venues, and then they start taking them on the road, which has been the case ever since. It was a bit, yeah, it was a big deal, and I was invited back on a handful of other occasions. And uh, as soon as I sensed that people were recognizing me in the crowd, was when I realized, okay, I should probably not do these anymore. That's what I want to talk to you about, because I'm sure as a kid breaking in and sleeping in your car and getting beat up in training, like on the one hand, I just want to wrestle. I just want to have a match. Uh, I'm not going to tell anybody. But then on the other hand, it's like, holy cow, I have an opportunity to not be in front of a few hundred fans in West Virginia. Yeah. And I'm in front of over 10,000 fans here right. with the bright lights and television cameras it feels like, wow, I made it. I think a lot of people, though, coming out of that with a dislocated jaw and some jacked-up teeth would, might be thinking, yeah, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. This was a fun little thing. I got it out of my system. And I could see how they would say, yeah, this isn't really for me. But you somehow enjoyed it, appreciate it, but recognized that I can't stay here and keep doing this. And for a lot of people, that was their ultimate goal to make it. Talk us through how you just knew this isn't best for me to be seen as an enhancement. Now. Well, my brother and I, when we used to wrestle, like we used to <laughs> Israel, Matia, Frankie, we knew the names of the jobbers, right? Uh, the enhancement talent, as well as we knew some of the big stars. Mario Mancini. Uh, uh, and the, you know, this sounds crazy to say, but the best enhancement guy I'd ever seen was Bret Hart. Right. And I really looked up to Bret for his ability to take punishment. He would take that incredible uh, whip into the turnbuckle, sternum first, and I was never able to do it. And believe me, I tried. I've never seen anyone do it like Bret did. And then Bret one day becomes part of the Hart Foundation, but that's kind of like an anomaly. You right. don't usually grow from there. And I had no idea about Bret Hart's history and that he'd had these legendary matches with right. Dynamite Kid. I didn't even know who Stu Hart was. I just thought, this guy is so good. Like, I looked up to him. Like, there was Superfly, a few others, and then there was that Bret Hart guy because he can take punishment. But aside from a guy like Jim Powers, I think Paul Roma to some degree had gone from, you know, had worked his way up to becoming a, 
uh, you know, a regular on the circuit. But these guys also looked really good. Yes. Uh, Roman Powers and uh, Brett was clearly a phenomenal worker. But I didn't, I just thought I'm going to be seen by teenagers who are wrestling as their Mario Mancini, their Frankie Williams. And I always had a vision as to where I wanted to go. But with that being said, my goal, my initial goal was to have one match. And I even said in the book that if you go to my house, there's very little in the way of wrestling there, very little. There, I think there's like an action figure somewhere and there might be one photo. But you've seen when we go and do dark, uh, not dark, <laughs> WWE Most Wanted Treasures, some of the guys have a lot of stuff up, some have little, and I have almost none. But if I had only had that one match, my feeling is that there'd be an entire room featuring every grainy eight by 10 that had been shot during the course of that match because it would have been one of the great moments of my life. If I'd never had another match, it still would have been a worthwhile experience. But keep in mind, I'd had that match at first match in June and now it's two months later and I have escalated my uh, my goals to where now I want to be uh, a good worker and somebody who can work a territory. And so if someone's out there and uh, you know they can take something from this, I do believe in that just escalation of goals. Start reasonable. Never think of yourself as a failure if you don't make it because it's all about the journey, not the destination. Yes. And uh, there was this line in the uh, documentary I did for uh, a final project for school where we actually did a documentary about Danucci School. And I still think it holds up. I think it's an extra on uh, For All Mankind, the DVD set, about 12 minutes, pretty well done. Editing's pretty good. It tells a story. And uh, they have me doing a, a, I'm doing a voiceover on my own project. Uh, one of the guys has me in a rear chin lock and you hear me saying, look, the truth is I might not make a lot of money in this business, uh, but the places I've been, the things I've done, it's been the most worthwhile experience of my life. And that's the way I felt about it. So I just urge people to go in there and take their swings and realize that striking out is part of the game, you know, and it's much better to be someone who has tried and failed. Yeah. The man in the arena, you know, which is such a great poem than to be the guy who sits on his couch and says, what if? Iconic wrestler Kevin Von Erich just announced his first public tour. The show, titled Stories from the Top Rope, will feature Von Erich sharing insight into his career, personal triumphs, and tragedies. Stories from the Top Rope will go on sale June 2nd at EmporiumPresents.com and will offer a very limited number of VIP tickets, which include a meet and greet and photo op. Von Eric, now 65, will be the subject of a major motion picture, Iron Claw, which stars Zac Efron and is slated for release later this year. See Kevin Von Eric live September 1st in Dallas, September 2nd in San Antonio, September 3rd in Corpus Christi, September 5th in Houston, September 6th in Shreveport, September 8th in Oklahoma City, September 9th in Amarillo, and September 10th in Midland. Tickets on sale June 2nd at EmporiumPresents.com. Well said. I, I do want to ask, you know, how did you, uh, you sort of alluded to it after that first WBF experience, you're out bumps and bruises and it would have been easy to get really down on yourself. Yeah. How do you persevere? 
the I think the one moment that was really tough on me is when I went. I had to take a couple of weeks back from off of Danucci School after the jaw injury. And when I back, went back, I took a clothesline and immediately dislocated the jaw again. And mm. my first thought was, I can't do this, you know, I can't do this. And the truth is, the 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 jaw was, it was an issue in my career. There was probably five or six other times before Francois Petit uh, was able to put it back in immediately. I swear, it looked like something out of a Three Stooges you know, show. Francois was just like kind of just guru. Uh, <laughs> like a guru. Yeah, he was incredible. He wouldn't just he would give you a massage. He massage you while doing shiatsu, and it was really painful. He had these super strong hands. Like walking up the wall. He would walk too. up the wall. He wouldn't have you on a table. He would have you sitting down, and then he would just vault up like he was Spider Man. So his he'd be wearing amateur wrestling shoes, and they'd be up on the wall like four feet. So he could put more. More sure. emphasis, and uh, he was the guy who got me wa- you know, standing straight after I looked like a question mark in '97. From we already did an episode, where we talked about the back problems I was having. And um, Francois, one day when I came back, I've taken a clothesline or something, and I couldn't close my mouth. He goes, oh, "Let me take a look." And he, I'm confusing my French, yeah, my terrible French and Italian accent. So apologies to people of both descents. And he puts his hand on my chin. And as he's doing it, I was like, well, this is Three Stooges. Like, who does he think he, and he slaps his hand. I went, and I thought, that's the issue? Like, I could have just had this thing put back in. Bam. And it was, this guy would be able to do amazing things. He really could. Let's do a few questions, then we'll wrap this one up. Let's go back to WCW on Twitter wants to know, what's the most important thing Dominic Danucci taught you? Just to respect the business. Mm. And so when I go back to the uh, the cell match, which we're, uh, you know, on the eve almost of uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of, and people wonder, you know, what was it that got me back up after I'd been knocked out? It's the respect the, that Danucci had instilled in all of his students. And now looking back, of course, the right move would have made to stop the match. We know that now. But that's what kept me going. So the most important lesson he taught me was, he said, to respect the business. And he said, and don't think you're making a living doing this bullshit. And I thought at the time that was crazy. But uh, the value of a college education, which he had not been able to achieve coming over as an immigrant with very little in the way of money, coming over to uh, Montreal first. The guy spoke three languages. We would all, all, maybe four, we would always kid around about the, you know, the lack of mastery of the singles and the plurals and the ball yes. this big. And yet when we go to foreign countries, he was the guy speaking French in Burkina Faso. He was the guy obviously speaking Italian in Italy. And uh, and I'm like, I'm the college educated guy and I can't even say hello. So right. you, I learned so much from him. And I also learned what it meant to be treated well. There you go. To not being taken advantage of because Danucci he was the real deal. He wasn't a fighter, because he, but he could, nobody was gonna, nobody was gonna take advantage of him. One time we were in Italy, this big guy, guy comes up, bodybuilder, like looking like, uh, if not world-class, and at least very good, and he wanted Dominic to train him. And Dominic says, I'll tell you what, he goes, and he, I think he says in Italian, if I'm gonna get down in the referee position, if you, can, if you can break me down, I will train you. 
and here's this guy who probably puts up 450 on the bench press, 600 on the squat, couldn't couldn't get Dominic off his base. And we all just looked at each other and we we're like, this is a whole different level of badass than we knew. Yeah. And he could, if he wanted to, hurt you really badly in a hurry. And he let us know that he could, but he never did. And I really respected that. I understand the you know the old school thought of breaking somebody's ankle so they go back to work with a cast. Uh, the bigger and tougher the guy, the better. But that's not how I was treated. And uh, I am a back patter, not a, a you know not a kick in the butt guy. Uh, it was it was difficult for me to adjust to that part. Um, but I, I guess the tough love was kind of what I needed, and he was just an incredible mentor and trainer. Let's talk uh, one more question here, and this is from. Uh, can you tell us the story of Kyle White? <laughs> <laughs> this is a good one. Apparently, we got you tickled here. Kyle, you know when I came in and I, I showed you the uh, the memoir I had written as a dad called the the Foley yes. Chronicles. Well, yes. Kyle actually gets his own chapter called "The Night Kyle Hits the Ring." Kyle, first and foremost. He's a badass because he's kicked cancer's butt, I think, on three different occasions. Uh, but even Kyle's mom will admit that, you know, he's uh, got a, a developmental okay. disability as well. Um, but this kid, he, before he, when I say aged out, when you're 18, you can no longer go to the uh, hole-in-the-wall gang camp. But he okay. loved the camp. What an amazing experience that was for me as a volunteer going up there just about every week, you know, for a couple of summers. Uh, and I didn't meet Kyle there, but one of the uh, one of the um, other volunteers, they weren't not a volunteer, but one Camp of the staff, counselor? yeah, okay. counselors, tells me there's this kid who was here uh, last week. He's a huge wrestling fan. So I ended up writing him a letter, sending him a few things, and thus a friendship begins. So I take Dewey and Noel to one of the Mike O'Brien independent shows, which is a really good independent, you know, Mike runs really, yeah. And... Uh, Kyle asks if he can be my manager uh, or be in the corner. I don't think I'm wrestling. I think this is 2001, 2002, but he asks if he can be a manager. I said, Kyle, it's really against, you know, the state uh, state um, athletic commission rules. And when Kyle walks away, I said, uh, my kids go, is it really? I go, no, but uh, Kyle's likely to hit the rink. <laughs> oh, know? my gosh. So, so we do this thing where I say, that I'm going to donate everything I make out of merchandise. This is before they would set up the meet and greets. This right. is when it would just be the wrestler at the table. And you had to put up with a lot more of that. You're going to charge me for an autograph? Now it's accepted. That's yes. how independent shows are, are come to fruition because you can get big stars, pay their fee largely yes. on the merchandise. Um, and so I made like $2,500, a heck of a lot of money at that time. And Jonathan Coachman said he was going to throw in what he wanted what he made as well. So I get in the ring and I announce that, uh, hey, $2,500, Jonathan Coachman is, uh, I know he plays a jerk on TV, but he's going to be uh, donating the money that he made and Coach grabs the ring and goes, Mick, you are so naive. Because <laughs> we've set up a spot where I duck the punch, you know, hit him, the money goes flying in the air. But before we can get that, he goes, you are so naive. If you think I'm going to take the money I made to a group of dumb kids, and all of a sudden I see Kyle coming up 
cost about 14 at this time. And he's just got animosity in his eyes, brother. This is a vendetta. And he's he hits the ring like it's a cartoon. And I've got the hand on Kyle's, Kyle's forehead as he's throwing. He's got the eyes closed and he's throwing the haymakers. And all I could think of is, People are going to think we set this kid up, yes, right? Yes. We get this set, and then I make the mistake of giving Kyle a live microphone, and he almost drops an F bomb. He goes, "You, you, you're such a jerk, coach. <laughs> you're such a jerk." Cuts a little promo, and then we end up ad libbing, and we do the spot where coach's money goes flying in the air, and we, you know, we raised. Uh, I get you, coach probably had about fifteen hundred bucks. Four grand. Four grand. But not without Kyle hitting the ring. Uh, the and the, my kids still talk about it to this day. Dad, you remember when Kyle hit the ring? I, I certainly <laughs> do. I certainly do. And I think Kyle listens to the show. He does. So Kyle, was this from Kyle? It's from Kyle. Oh man, Kyle, I love you, buddy. And uh, he moved down to uh, North Carolina, and I remember seeing him at one of my shows. Is that Kyle White? So Kyle's a great kid. Like I said, he has kicked cancer and ass on three different occasions. He did hit the ring and tried to take out Jonathan Coachman. The story of Kyle. My goodness. <laughs> we'll be back next week talking about One Night Stand 2006. In the meantime, be sure to check out an exclusive Ask Mick Anything. You just did it not too long ago with adfreeshows.com. Hung out with our man Cassio. How fun was that? That was a good time, man. I really enjoyed it. I still have to put out the post where I thank you and Cassio for setting my wife and uh, two younger boys up oh, with the no shine down meet and greet. Well, listen, we uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in. If you haven't already, go check us out on YouTube, Foley on YouTube.com. We had a lot of fun talking about some of the silly shirts that are available now over at FoleyIsPodShirts.com. Be sure to check that out. I'm sure have a ball this big. We'll be there before you know it. <laughs> Uh, be sure to also keep up with Mick on Instagram. He is at Real Mick Foley. Uh, you can, of course, check out the show uh, at Foley is Pod on Twitter as well. Mick, today was fun, man. I'm looking forward to it was the next fun. one. Remember, nice guys, camp. only 12 tickets left for the 28th in Ver in uh, Burlington, Vermont. And uh, RealMickFoley.com. RealMickFoley.com. Uh, the uh, signing in Pittsburgh is going to be a lot of fun. And for my buddy Kyle, please email me or the show. And I can't send you a copy of the Foley Chronicles because that's just, you know, just a family thing. But I'll send you the chapter entitled The Night Kyle Hit the Ring. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> and by the way, folks, Cameo, can I just mention it's exactly what Dad wants for Father's Day? Yes, big time. And it's uh, $99 through June 4th. $99 is usually there uh, $149, $99, and I will exceed your expectations. I just sat down two nights ago and wrote a new Father's Day song, so now I've got four of them, which for the record is four more than Brett Howard has, so just love putting it. it out there. I love it. Check it out. Mick Foley on Cameo, and get a deal. Do it this weekend. Dad's going to love it, and we'll see you next week right here on Foley is Pop. Have a nice day. Fight Plus is the ultimate digital platform for live sports and entertainment, and they're now offering a free seven-day trial at TryFight.com. Fight Plus is packed with a premium live event schedule, over a thousand hours of live action every year, and a library of more than four thousand hours on demand, plus exclusive content you can't get anywhere else. Fight is a great partner of ours; they support us, so let's support them. Give that free seven-day trial a shot, and you'll be a member for life. That's tryfight.com. T-R-Y-F-I-T-E dot com.
Hey guys, need to call a quick time out here. Wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling my listeners over at OU didn't know for a while now about all the cool things happening over at adsfreeshows.com. On a bonus episode of Arn, the Enforcer watches back Beach Blast 92 with the ultimate heel and baby face in Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat. Draw me a baby face. Something that everybody could get behind. Kids, women, old folks, young folks, men, you know, all guys wanted to be him. Women, I'm sure, wanted to be with him. Uh, He was the all-around package. On Volume 55 of the Ask Conrad series, Conrad talks about some of his dream podcast partners, including a couple of degenerates. You know, from inside the business and taking over and NXT and all that, I don't think you could get a better podcast partner than Triple H there, just because he's done so much. However, if you're talking about wanting to learn more about the psychology of wrestling and what makes a match and how to develop talent and all that, could you beat Shawn Michaels? That's just a small taste of what we got waiting for you. With four levels to choose from, see for yourself why Ads Free Shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adsfreeshows.com.